Broadcasting live to the world now. It's Sheila Zelensky. This is a very sinister Luciferian eugenics plan. These spineless weasels preach what people want to hear. They replace repentance with dreams of the good life. Mindless minions. Dying daily, taking up your cross, suffering and sacrificing have been superseded with name it and claim it. as dark as I know it looks out there, the good news is that God is advancing his kingdom. And it's very exciting to be a part of his great commission. It's Sheila Zelensky. Zelensky Show, the only show to give you the truth behind the headlines, prophecy, and the deeper things of God. Now, here is your host, end time watchwoman, Sheila Zelensky. Hello listeners, and welcome to this Thursday, February 5th, 2015 edition of the Sheila Zelensky Show. I'm your host, Sheila Zelensky. A shout out to all the WWCR listeners and folks around the globe tuning in. Folks, go to WeekendVigilante.com and follow me on social media by clicking the social media tabs to the right. Also, follow me on Podomatic. If you are being blessed by the show, please do what you can. Giving is a kingdom principle, and don't assume someone else is. So again, if you're blessed by the show, do your part. Do what you can. When it comes to my guest today, we could literally spend the entire full hour just talking about impressive bio in itself. She is a Harvard grad, a popular and sought-after media commentator whose views have been featured in thousands of radio, television, and print news stories. She's been featured in a number of films, including Aaron Rousseau's award-winning film, America, From Freedom to Fascism. She is a dynamic radio personality with a syndicated show whose passion for truth and freedom have earned her many devoted acolytes. She's authored a bunch of books, including I Will Not Take the Mark that just came out here a few months ago. She has taken on major corporations, forcing them to revisit plans to track and monitor the public. She's really spearheaded the worldwide movement against RFID tracking and implant technologies, and I call her the doctor of digital privacy, Dr. Katherine Albrecht. Welcome back to my program. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Hello, Sheila. It's great to be back on with you. Catherine, barely a day goes by where you turn on the TV or open a newspaper without hearing about some big brother intrusion. We're being spied on, recorded, watched, data mined. We're being tracked, hacked, and attacked like never before and now chipped. George Orwell, as I said in a program yesterday, would roll in his grave to see his dystopian novel playing out like a newspaper. I want to talk about your award-winning, best-selling book, Spy Chips. 
how major corporations and governments plan to track your every move with RFID. That book now, it's a little bit older, but it's a tremendous compilation of information. You went through over 30,000 confidential, sometimes classified government and technical documents in your research. You really, Catherine, have your thumb in the pulse of how these Orwellian technologies are being implemented. Mock speed. Give our listeners a synopsis on the book and an overview on this term spy chips tell us what RFID is how it's being used who's using it and why people should be very concerned about this yeah well the book actually came out almost 10 years ago and at the time we were told yeah this will never happen this is pie in the sky we as you mentioned in in that lovely intro we reviewed 30,000 documents which were in the very words of the developers and the adopters of this technology big companies like Philips Electronics and uh, Accenture and all all of the the big guys including some of the the very very big names of major corporations like IBM saying in their own words exactly how they plan to use these technologies in order to spy on people not on the internet but in their physical lives. And they're calling it the Internet of Things. And if you thought the Internet was a privacy nightmare, wait till you see what they're going to be able to do with the physical objects in our homes that we wear and carry. The, uh, the Internet of Things is based on a technological breakthrough in, in 1999, which is what spy chips is all about. It is the ability to develop tiny stickers or even things printed onto packages that are remotely trackable. And so you essentially create a, a radio frequency ID transponder, uh, RFID is the, uh, the acronym for that. And what this transponder is, it's a tiny microchip, in some cases as small as a speck of dust, connected to a miniature antenna that can then be placed onto a physical object and used to kind of make it like a node on the internet, kind of make it like its own web page so that you can actually identify individual things. The problem with this technology is it can be read from a distance, it can be read through walls, it can be read without you having any concept whatsoever that it's been read, or without even having any concept whatsoever that the tag is even on something that you've purchased. So if you buy a pair of shoes, it's possible to embed one of these tags literally into the rubber sole of the shoe and then put reader devices that can pick up that information into floor mats or under the, the, the floor tiles or put them in doorways or put them any other place that people go. And in fact, uh, one of the things we, we showed in Spy Chips was a floor mat for specifically that purpose for picking up the RFID tags in people's shoes and that the patent right there was from Philips Electronics. So <laughs> you've got a lot of big companies with, with plans to use this. IBM, uh, we, we uh, broke the news in our book that IBM had developed something called the Person Tracking Unit, which is a pretty horrible name. They came up with it, not us. And the Person Tracking Unit is a patented plan to use all of these RFID tags that IBM envisions be, being placed in everything that we wear or buy or carry because they, they envision that this technology will replace the barcode. So in a world where every physical object in a woman's purse or a man's pockets or a student's backpack, uh, right down to the color of your underwear, the tag in your underwear, every physical object that you wear or carry would all contain these tiny RFID tags. So if you walk through, for example, a doorway that's equipped with a reader, the doorway can actually do a sort of virtual frisk and identify every single physical object on your person. 
It gets kind of worse, though, because what it makes possible is, let's say there's a, oh, I don't know, depending on your, your politics, a, a gun rally or a, a pro-choice or, or pro-life event, and you turn out to some politically hot-button event, it would be possible, right now under our Constitution, it would be illegal for the government to send out police to rough everybody up and demand to see their ID so they'd know who was there. Right. But in a, in a situation where everybody had RFID tags on them, then it would be a simple matter to simply mill around the crowd and pick up all of those numbers and then cross-reference them with the, with the stores where those objects were purchased. Or even if the stores refuse to release that information, and we know that, that the NSA has ways of getting information out of companies, but if they were not able to get that information, they could simply put all of those physical objects on a watch list and say, anytime one of those physical objects is seen at an airport, then deny that person the ability to go on an airplane, for example. So you could actually have your political beliefs tracked because of the things you're wearing and carrying being tracked. So it's really um, a pretty nightmarish uh, situation. There are horrible patents. This person tracking unit was uh, by IBM detailed how they plan to track people in public spaces, in theaters, museums, libraries, bus stops, restrooms, uh, literally restrooms, elevators. So when you're you're in washing your hands, they would actually be able to tell if you used the bathroom and did or did not wash your hands. And you could actually get some demerit in, in some public uh, health database. So th this degree of, of completely invasive tracking through physical objects is, is really what the Internet of Things is all about. And it's a term that wasn't, you didn't hear much about it when spy chips came out. Now, 10 years later, everybody's talking about it. It is being unrolled as we speak. Alien Technology, which is one of the big technology companies that makes these tags, just got yeah. over $30 million of, of investment uh, money funding to uh, create a huge number of these tags. And um, the big corporations are all um, pretty much applauding that 10 years have gone by. People, they say, have gotten used to being tracked through their cell phones, so now it's time to start tracking them through all their other belongings. Speaking of very insidious, there's an IBM e-business commercial. You can see it on YouTube called RFID, the future market. I have it linked there on the bio on the website. It is a guy and he's cruising through a store. And at first you think he's a shoplifter sticking things in his jacket pockets. And then at the end, he steps through this gigantic scanner and a security guard says, excuse me, sir, you forgot your receipt. And he hands him his receipt for the items. It's very chilling because also not only did the thing tabulate all his items that he stuck on his body, but it also chip tracked and then took the money out of his bank account. I mean, in addition to companies, Catherine, putting RFID in products, you've got these very nefarious companies like IBM, Cisco, Dell, HP, working with government, mandatorily tracking their citizens. You've got situations in India and Mexico and China, and the Nigerian government is running a large-scale pilot project. It's a biometric national ID with a MasterCard. Of course, we know the U.S. credit card giant is easing its way throughout the globe. An initial 13 million Nigerians will participate in this pilot project. You know, that's a whopping 160 million people are expected to carry the cards by 2019. Catherine, do you think we can expect this to be in America soon? Well, I think unless there is, uh, unless people are willing to stand up and do something about it, yes, it will. And unfortunately, what's what's been happening in recent years is is a kind of a surveillance 
fatigue has set in, I think, among regular people. I, we, every day, as you pointed out, you turn on the, the radio, you, you, you look at the news, you open the newspaper, and there's another story of some other horrible program that invades people's privacy. And I think while we all feel individually outraged, we also feel that there's really no nothing we can do about it. And I'll give you an example. There, um, On my own radio program, I'm actually going to be interviewing a, a Forbes commentator by the name of Gordon Kelly, who uncovered that Windows 10, now remember Windows 8 was the operating system that everybody hated because yeah. they tried to introduce the touch screen and people got confused and it was kind of a mess. Now their next version is Windows 10. They kind of skipped 9. <laughs> and their <laughs> Windows 10, I think it tried to distance themselves from uh, 8 as much as they can. But that Windows 10, uh, Gordon Kelly actually took the time to sit down and read the terms and conditions for the beta version of Windows 10. And what he found, and and just left me gobsmacked with my jaw open, he found that Microsoft gives itself the right to review and make copies of all of your files that any time you turn on the microphone and record any kind of audio, that they can get a copy of that audio. It gives them the right to know every click, every website that you visit, all of this data of your use of, of Windows gets phoned home to Microsoft. And I got to tell you, if this had happened, I don't know, 15 years ago, people would have, I, there would have been blood in the streets. I mean, it would have been a complete, what are you thinking that you're going to give yourself the right to view all my files? Are you crazy? And yet today, when people hear this, yeah, there's a little flurry. But, you know, it was interesting. What Gordon said was half the people he, he shared this with thought, that's outrageous, but what can we do about it? And the other half defended Microsoft actually defended wow. Microsoft and said, well, they've got to know this information to help perfect their product, and they're just trying to make things better for us. And, and he's just sitting there going, what? What has happened to people? So uh, that's that's really, I think, where, where I'm starting to get a little bit nervous is because we know after Ed Snowden exactly what's being done with our personal data. It's winding up in the hands of people with guns and tanks and political yeah. agendas. It's winding up in the hands of people who are not necessarily our friends. And what can we do about it? I don't know. But do people even still care? I don't know. Um, do people still care? Well, let's take a listen to a clip that someone sent me yesterday and let's find out. Let's play that clip. And finally this morning, no need to worry about forgetting your work ID with this development. A new office facility in Sweden is offering workers the option to have a microchip implanted in the hand. Now, the chip is about the size of a grain of rice. It allows workers to open doors or use the company printers. Now, eventually, it may enable the staff to log on computers, even pay for their food in the cafeteria. Now, Judy and Terrell, I'm one of those people that's always fishing into my bag, trying to find the idea to get in. But even this sounds like it's going a little too far. Oh, exactly. I will stick with that. Yep. Thank mm -hmm. you. Exactly. I would almost feel, I mean, I feel like a dog almost, you know? Wait, microchipping you so you can access the printer? Right. <laughs> free anyway? No, thank you. No, all good. Pass on <laughs> okay. that. All right, Stace. Thank you so much. I mean, isn't that staggering that here they are just giggling about it? It's, it's absolutely stunning when you listen to this clip because really, Catherine, if you stop and think about this, you know, you just said, I wonder if people even really do care. The maniacal establishment keeps moving the goalposts, so it seems on what's acceptable, what's, what people will put up with, what people will tolerate. They decide now who travels, who works, who buys or sells, who lives or die, who can procreate. 
this is total enslavement by stealth, is it not? Our technologies are enslaving us. It is time to wake up because, in my opinion, people are being taught to love their servitude. It's just a bunch of shoulder-shrugging, mindless minions walking around in a dystopic trance, and yet we're seeing Bible prophecy ubiquitously unfolding around us. Yet people are being systematically ushered into this cashless society at mock speed and all their rights being usurped, acquiescing to this globalist regime. But the Bible talks about not being able to buy or sell without the mark of the beast. Catherine, do you think the RFID is opening the doors for the mark of the beast? No question that it is. Absolutely no question. And in order to answer that, I have a lot of people say, well, do you think RFID is the mark of the beast? I had someone write me in in real um, spiritual concern because she had gone to a concert where they put an RFID tag on her right wrist for her to attend the concert. Did I take the mark of the beast? Well, RFID in its current form is, is not the mark of the beast. And I wrote her back and reassured her that while maybe she didn't make the wisest choice from uh, a privacy perspective and even from kind of helping the world to go in the right direction, it might not be yeah. wise to allow people to put those on you. And the more of us who speak out, the, the longer it's going to take before that becomes ubiquitous. But the, the mark is on its way. And we know that because we are the first generation to live and breathe on this planet that actually has the technological capability of implementing the mark of the beast. People who who need a refresher, it's in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, which of course was the the revelation or the vision that the Apostle John saw when he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos off the coast of Greece. He was a very, very old man and on he says he was um, you know resting on the Lord's day and this vision appeared to him. Christ himself came to this very, very old man, uh, John, who had, of course had known Christ when he lived on earth, and proceeded to show him, took him up to heaven and showed him all of the things that would unfold as the world drew to a close. And what, what he showed with regard to the mark of the beast, he wrote down, and this is in Revelation chapter 13, which is easy to remember because it's kind of an unlucky number, and it's the last three verses, uh, verses 16 through 18, the very end of chapter uh, 13 of Revelation. And it says, and he causes all, now he is uh, the beast of the end time, the Antichrist, some people call him. He is a political leader who will rule the entire planet and have total control over humanity. And it says he will cause all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and bond or enslaved or imprisoned, to receive a mark on their right hand or their forehead without which they won't be able to buy or sell. And it says, let him who has understanding count the number of the mark, for it is the number of a man or the number of his name, which is 666. So that's why in popular culture and a lot of uh, rock music or, or heavy metal music, you'll hear the 666 referred to. That comes straight from Revelation 13. So this idea that people would have to have a number to buy and sell was actually very confusing to John. He he was told, simply write this down. The prophecies of the end are for the people of the end to understand. So don't worry if you don't understand it. Just write it down. People will know when the time comes. And now, when, when I was growing up in the 1970s as a little girl, I did not have any way to imagine how you could buy or sell with a number. And it sounds kind of hard to believe now. I'm not that old. But when I was a girl, there were no personal computers and stores did not certainly have uh, personal computers or even scanners. 
in the stores when I was a girl. Um, there weren't even barcodes. There were just price stickers or, or purple price tags on things in ink. And if you wanted to pay for them, you paid cash. You might write a check. Um, some really exotic people had diners club cards, but there was no Visa or MasterCard or American Express or anything like that. So I didn't see anyone buying and selling with a number as a child. And when I first heard this prophecy from my grandmother, I said, how is it possible that you could buy or sell with a number? And I really racked my brain. I was eight years old at the time trying to figure this out, and I couldn't figure it out. Now you fast forward a couple of decades and you can ask any eight-year-old, how do you buy or sell with a number? And they'll say, well, do you mean a credit card? Do you mean a swipe of my phone? Do you mean a QR code? Do you mean a, a barcode? <laughs> do you, they'll give you a, a, a dozen different ways that you can buy and sell with a number. So that part has occurred. That part, I, in my lifetime, I have watched the ability to buy and sell with a number become universal and ubiquitous. There are very few people on planet Earth today who are not able to obtain some form of credit card and buy and sell with a number. In fact, even in Africa now, MasterCard has gone down there in full force and introduced credit card type debit cards. You, you take 100 bucks of Nigerian money or whatever it is and you put it on this MasterCard and now you're using plastic to buy and sell with a number. It really is stunning nowadays the way that we're just mock speeding into this cashless society. And you just mentioned all the various cashless ways. I mean, kids nowadays at the swipe of an app, at the movie theater, the Starbucks lineup, they'll just swipe their phones and bleep, you know, it comes right off their account. It's just incredible how quickly we are approaching that. And here's the kicker. When I was, you talked about growing up in the 70s, in 1982, I remember that I had a book that my uncle gave my parents. Do you remember this book, When Your Money Fails? And it was really interesting that they talked about barcodes and scanners. And of course, we didn't have computers or scanners or anything, but later they came out. And that book talked about the cashless society, the system that was being implemented. And you can really see a culmination of events that really have taken us over the past two decades up to where we are today in a complete ubiquitous. I mean, there's no checks anymore. People are swiping their card. They're tapping these cards now. You know, you just hit a machine tap. You know, pretty soon we're going to see, well, you just happen to have your hand and forehead handy. So let's swipe those. I mean, it is pretty staggering. And uh, that, that book, I don't know if you recall that, but I think a lot of us read that book back in the 80s. I think Mary Stuart Welfy, while she was wrong about a number of things, I think she did a real service in, in waking people up to that. I, I've heard that over a million copies of that book were sold. So that, that book was um, was was quite popular in the 1970s. And in fact, in the 1970s, it wasn't just that. It was um, there, there were a number of groups and organizations and, and churches that really emphasized the mark of the beast. You could see it in movies. It was in music. I've got a song about uh, the mark that I play on my show. Um, people talked about it, and we grew up in the 1970s being very, very much aware that such a thing was coming. Now you talk to young people, and they have no idea. And the reason for that is that somehow our generation has become embarrassed to try to, to, to mention this, embarrassed to talk about it. Uh, the churches are embarrassed to mention it from the pulpit. If you mention it publicly, you will be ridiculed and made fun of, so you're some kind of you know wacky end-time conspiracist. But the reality is that for 2,000 years, the brightest minds of, of not just the church, but even scientific minds like Isaac Newton, devoted over a million words by candlelight to trying to decipher the prophecies of the Bible. Nobody looks at him and says he was a nutcase. He was a brilliant man. So 
it's weird to me, but I think it's to be expected that after 2,000 years of this being a very popular topic to discuss and try to discern, now that it's almost here, now that we have the technological capability of making it possible, nobody wants to touch this topic with a 10-foot pole. But my personal mission is to change that. I believe that had my grandmother not taken me aside when I was eight and told me about the mark of the beast, I probably would not be a saved Christian today. And I say that because um, it was really my realization that that these uh, predictions and, and warnings that she had given me are coming true all around me back in 19, well, the late 90s that I woke up and said, whoa, it's really happening. And if that's happening, then the whole Bible must be true. And I sat down and read the whole thing. The entire book of Revelation is coming true in front of our very eyes. And it's extraordinary to watch that happen. And the good news is that things, well, the bad news is it's happening the way the Bible describes. The good news is that if it's happening the way the Bible describes, then the Bible's other promises are true as well. And once you get past kind of this rough part with this beast, then then you get a new heaven and a new earth and things look pretty darn good. So <laughs> I got to say those promises you know we all i think we all agree the world is going to hell in a handbasket whether you mean that literally or not um the world is becoming a very messy place on on every front and if it were becoming messy in ways that did not match the bible i have to say i would be afraid because I would say, whoa, it's just spinning out of control. But the fact that it's becoming messy in exactly the way that the Bible tells us it would, that Israel would be recreated as a nation, that Israel would be at war with her with her neighbors, that people would be destroying the earth, that's in, that's in Revelation, that we would have uh, buying and selling with a number, that we would be become increasingly globalized in terms of political power. We've seen the rise of, of uh, the European Union, and I think that's only going to expand. And I think at some point we are going to have exactly what the Bible describes, a one-world power, whether that comes through the UN or through some other, some other organization. We are increasingly seeing global power being exerted uh, monetarily through you know, the IMF and, and other forms of pressure. And it's all happening exactly the way the Bible told us it would happen. So what we're waiting for now, and when people say, is RFID the mark of the beast? I say, well, no, it isn't, because there's one piece that has to happen first, and that is there has to be a global religion. When people talk about the beast, they usually only refer to one, but there are actually two beasts. There is a political beast and a religious beast. And the second beast rises up, the, the religious one, in order to direct everyone's worship at the first beast. So there will be a one-world government ruled by a beast, and there will be a one-world religion which directs worship towards that beast, which is led by a worship leader. And at that time, you will know, uh, when people say, how do I know? Is it coming? Is it here? I say, well, we have the technology to do it, but we don't yet have a one-world religion. The moment we start moving in a direction of a one-world religion, look out because all bets are off. That means we're standing right on the brink of, of the mark of the beast. Well, you've certainly got the groundwork being laid for a one-world religion, even just this last few months. Even back in January 3rd, Huffington reported that the Pope was fervent in his ongoing effort to unify the denominations of the Christian faith as well as other religions. Pope Francis 
hosted a series of interfaith gatherings in the last year at the Vatican. He saw Muslim prayers given from the pulpit for the first time in history are in complete contradiction to Bible scripture. But as biblical Christianity is being abandoned in the contemporary church, public displays of spiritual unity are becoming more common. And this is all prophesied in scripture as a world morphs into the coming one world religion of the Antichrist. You have Rick Warren out there promoting Chrislam. You had Kenneth Copeland and others. Last year, remember the delegation of evangelicals led by Kenneth Copeland and James Robinson. They met with Pope Francis at the Vatican, and the meeting was set up by Bishop Tony Palmer. He was the Anglican Episcopal Church leader in the United Kingdom, and then he died mysteriously, but the group made a formal statement. People can actually look this up on the Fort Worth Star Telegram. They said, this meeting was a miracle. They said, this is something that God has done. God wants his arms around the world, and he wants Christians to put his arms around the world by working together, becoming united. And of course, a couple of months ago, he saw megachurch speaker Joel Osteen. He also met with the Pope saying, I love the fact that he's made the church more inclusive, trying to make it larger to take everybody in. So that just resonates with me. Well, isn't that great, Joel? You really do see the groundwork being laid here for a one world religion. But the bottom line, Catherine, is we can inform people. Speaking of waking people up, kudos for your book that came out last Christmas. And it's really popular and now available for order. Talk about your book entitled, I Won't Take the Mark, how that came into fruition, why kids should understand this. Thank you. I'm so excited about this. My, as I mentioned earlier, I, my, I, I don't think I would be walking with the Lord and reading the Bible and understanding these times if my grandmother had not taken the time to have that conversation with me in a little farmhouse in Ohio many, many, many years ago. And uh, I'm glad she did because she passed away the following year. And if she hadn't told me that, my church never mentioned it. My parents actually never mentioned it. And I probably wouldn't have that knowledge today as I see these technologies developing. I wouldn't know necessarily to say no to them or to feel that kind of spiritual unease about some of these technological developments. So I wanted to create a way to help other parents and grandparents to give that same favor to their kids that that I received when I was eight years old. And it's often difficult for parents to have a conversation with kids about the, you know, well, not just the Mark of the Beast, but about the Book of Revelation in general. We give kids uh, books about Jonah and the Whale, uh, books about the Easter story, books about the Christmas story, uh, books about Noah's Ark. There's all sorts of Christian um, books for children about these various Bible stories, but there really are none, as far as I've been able to find, on the book of Revelation. And I think the reason, I think it's a couple of things. I think parents themselves feel that they're not in a position to fully understand the book. I think they feel like it's a little confusing, kind of <laughs> overwhelming, and um, they, they just kind of avoid it because it doesn't have an easy, simple story. It's not like the, the, the story of the ark, Noah's ark. That's simple. You know, um, God warned Noah, and then the rain came, and he save the animals and and then story's over. Revelation's a little bit more tricky than that. So what I've done is actually take the story of the mark of the beast from Revelation and also of the rise of the beast and of Christ's 
ultimate victory over the beast. And I've written it into a very simple children's story, but with a twist, because I did not want to do what I think Tim LaHaye is doing with the Left Behind series, for example, and make stuff up. I'm going to stick to exactly what the Bible says, and I also wanted to help parents learn what the Bible says. So the way I did this book, and it was a real delicate thing to come up with this this design, but we did it, and I love it. It has on the uh, so you open the page. It's uh, the book's about ten inches by ten inches. So it's when you open it up, it's a nice long rectangle. On the left hand side of the left page, you get the actual scripture in King James. So I I literally copied King James scripture into that section. And then I put the text right next to that for children. So I translated it in a way, and I've got a doctorate in education, and I was a classroom teacher for many years. So I kind of converted this complicated King James English into very, very simple sentences for children to understand what what was being said. And then on the right-hand side, on the right-hand page, the entire page is a beautiful watercolor illustration that illustrates what what was just said on the left-hand side. And this is the case for every page. It talks about how um, when Jesus died, his, his disciples were very sad, um, but they were happy when he rose up again to heaven to be with God. They then spent the rest of their lives telling people the good news about God's love. When John was an old man, uh, one of his disciples, he had a vision, and the vision told him the things that would happen and said to write it down. What he saw was that someday a beast would rise up and take power over the entire globe, that people would be deceived and that they would worship this beast, that they would be so impressed by the beast that they would even pray to him. But God's people would be too wise to do that. They would see right through him. The beast would then try to put a mark on every person on the planet, all the people And all the people would agree to that except for God's people who would say no because they know that the mark is bad and that God will punish the people who take the mark. Um, The beast will be very angry because of that. And this is the the one hard part of the book. But whenever I get to this, I always say Hansel and Gretel and Snow White and Sleeping Beauty are worse. (laughs) This is true. (laughs) Is At that point, the beast will punish the people who refuse to take his mark. And the Bible tells us that they will be beheaded. So this is the only one part of the the book you kind of go, really? But the good news is that God will reward his faithful followers. And then I go right into the marriage supper of the Lamb with a beautiful depiction of a party and of Christ um, reaching out and and helping a young woman get come to her feet, and with this beautiful party in the background because that's what that's what the Bible tells us. There will be a huge party and great rejoicing as those people who refuse to take the mark of the beast are welcomed into basically heaven. They're given um, white robes and crowns. They're actually given thrones to sit on, all of these people who refuse to take the mark, and they get to live and reign with Christ for a thousand years. Now, what's very interesting about this is, is most people don't realize, unless they've read Revelation very closely, that the rest of the dead do not get to be with Christ or even to experience any of this until after that thousand-year reign is up. The thousand-year reign is reserved specifically for the people who lost their lives by refusing to take the mark. So in a way, it's kind of the most tested generation because it's going to be pretty darn hard to say, yes, go ahead, take, you know, cut my head off, I have faith. On the other hand, that will be the most blessed and rewarded of all generations of of people who have followed God throughout all of history because they will actually live and reign with Jesus Christ. They will be the priests and the judges. They will have crowns and robes. 
and will actually live directly with him during that thousand-year reign. So that's a pretty awesome promise. And then, um, then we talk about the new heaven and the new earth, and we see it coming down from the sky. It's a very beautiful picture. We see Christ uh, doing battle with, with the beast and winning. Uh, we see the beast getting thrown into a pit with a with a set of keys, and he gets locked up in there. And uh, the book ends that way. And then it says, um, for thousands of years, it was very difficult for people to understand the book of Revelation, but John wrote it down anyway. Then it shows a picture of him as an old man writing it. And then at the very end, it says, this is really the crux of the whole book and the reason why I wrote it, is at that point, it says, now, basically, it's time for you to make a decision. Will you promise never to take the mark of the beast and never to worship anyone but God and to call in Jesus Christ to help you keep that promise? And that's the whole purpose of the book. The rest of the book is sort of a, a thing leading you to this really critical decision point. And the critical decision point is to say, I promise, I vow, I will not take the mark of the beast. I will never worship any kind of horrible beast. I'm only going to worship God. And if the child has not yet um, accepted Christ as their Savior, there's even a section at the very back of the book in the inside cover with the sinner's prayer where they can write their name down on both of those pages. That's what the book is about, to, to help children develop a relationship with Jesus Christ if they don't have one yet, and then to help them make a promise that when they make this promise at age, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, and and remember this promise for the rest of their lives, then if it happens in our lifetime, they will be prepared and they'll know how to respond. I encourage people to look very closely at the technologies that they're adopting today and see, are they moving in this direction? And I think they absolutely are to really ask themselves some some key questions and to give those children that preparation that they may need because we've already got people putting implants into their hands to buy and sell stuff, putting microchip, their RFID tags encapsulated in glass that they're injecting into their own flesh so that they can open their, you know, unlock their door or turn on their computer. The the technology is here. The all of the political pieces are coming together with Israel and, and, and her neighbors. All of the uh, religious pieces, as you pointed out, I think are starting to fall into place. It's not a good state. And I think eventually that once he has completely eradicated religion, then I think at that point the, the beast of the end time is going to stand up and say, hey, here's a religion, look, and come worship, and people will come in droves. And, and this is really the danger, I think, that, that is coming. You're absolutely right. This is the danger that's coming and people need to be aware. Catherine, give out your website for the folks. Um, my website is com, which is hard to spell, so I've simplified it to kmashow.com. Catherine, thank you so much for coming on the program. Folks, all Catherine's information is linked there at weekendvigilante.com as well as where you can order the book, I Won't take the mark. Get a copy for your children, your grandchildren. I think every child should have a copy of this book. Incredible oath to take to not take that mark. Very, very important. In fact, one of the most crucial things that we can give to our children, really. And again, I just want to thank you so much for coming on. God bless you and your listeners. Thanks so much. Folks, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back with our next guest. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after the break. The Sheila Zielinski Show is sponsored by SteveQuayle.com, offering a wide variety of products, links, headlines, and information for the end times. Order Steve's new book, Little Creatures, by visiting SteveQuayle.com. Dare to discover, learn, prepare, and be amazed. 
Welcome back from the break, folks. My next guest really needs no introduction, but for my new listeners, I nicknamed him the Chuck Norris of Trends Forecasting. He's the founder of the Trends Research Institute and author of a book I've read that was excellent, Trends 2000. He's highly respected and regarded for his uncanny track record of economic, business, consumer, and geopolitical trends before they come to pass. He's one of my favorites because he doesn't mince words. Gerald Salente, welcome to the program. Good to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, Sheila. Gerald, there's so much to get into here. The technocratic oligarchs, they want to control the future. They want us dumbed down with celebrity culture, watching Dancing with the Stars, and mindlessly watching the mind-numbing Super Bowl and the Illuminati puppet Hollywood minions with their occultic halftime show. You've got everyone dumbed and numbed playing video games and staring at their smartphones like zombies. And the amazing thing is MSNBC and Clown News Network are consciously churning out the propaganda, telling you what they want you to know. And they're all screaming, we're in recovery, we're in recovery. we got plummeting oil prices. Let's start with some comments you made a few weeks ago here in January on gold. What do you make of the dollar strength we're seeing right now, Gerald, and the gold manipulation? Break that down for us. Well, the dollar's strength is really many of the other currencies' weaknesses. There's nothing there to bolster the strength of the dollar. Right. Particularly when you hear the Federal Reserve, as the markets began to go down in October, they came out and they used some cryptic language to indicate that they were going to keep interest rates low for maybe longer than when they said they were going to raise them. And now they're saying that they may not raise them until 2016. That will mean that they haven't raised interest rates in 10 years if they wait that long, because they haven't raised them since 2006. There's nothing to stabilize the dollar's strength. We're not seeing it in manufacturing. We're not seeing it in production. And then when we just saw the latest unemployment numbers that came out, yeah, they created more jobs, but... Wages went down. I have never been a proponent that gold prices will go up because inflation will go up. What's going to drive up the price of gold is the value of the currencies are going to continue to decline. Look what's going to happen over in Europe at the end of this month. They're going to have a meeting for, quote, quantitative easing. That means buying up junk bonds And they're even talking now about buying up junk corporate bonds. So it's one grand manipulation. Given the current market situation, then what should the price of gold be, Gerald? Oh, gold should be over 2,000 an ounce. And by the way, I've been buying gold a long time. I began buying it in the late 1970s. Matter of fact, I bought gold on the day when it hit the interday high of $875 in January of 1980. And I woke up the next morning and I lost about, you know, a third of everything that I had earned. So I was there in the first gold bull run. This is a very different world than it was back then. You're seeing demand in China. You're seeing physical demand from from uh, India. You're seeing physical demand everywhere that didn't exist back then. So this is a very different marketplace. Again, the only reason why we see gold prices being suppressed because it is not in the best interests of the central banks to wake up the people that are saying, 
look, we've been printing all of this digital money backed by nothing, printed on nothing, and it's not worth much. And that's why gold prices are high. They don't want that to happen. They will do everything and anything to keep the prices low. Joe, let's look at the term bankism, the quantitative easing shenanigans, the banking cabal's Ponzi scheme. And how does this hurt the average person? Four words killed capitalism. And they're undeniable. Too big to fail. Those words do not exist in capitalism. Period. Paragraph. Nobody's too big to fail, except if you're one of the big banks. It's a banking takeover. Now we have a situation where the Fed's loaning out money at what? To the big guys, 0.25%. How does it benefit the market? So here you are. You're one of the big bankers. I got a deal for you. I'll loan you this money out at basically nothing. And you could loan it out and get any price that you could get for it because we just wiped out the usury laws over the last 30 years. Number two, one of the big guys of the Fortune 500, buy back your stock. We're going to keep that market up. Number three, mergers and acquisitions. You get your money cheap and start doing deals again. And now we're back in 2014 to 2007 levels of mergers and acquisitions. Now, how does it hurt the average person? Once upon a time, when I was a young man, they used to have a thing called savings accounts. That's right. People put their money in the bank and they got interest in return. And that interest was higher than the rate of inflation. Now you put your money in the bank, well, you get virtually nothing back Because interest rates are so low, it's only benefiting the bigs. And if you live in Europe and you have a certain amount of euros going into the bank, guess what? You have to pay them to keep it there. So that's the deal. It's only helping the big. That's all that's juiced this stock market is the quantitative easing, record low interest rates, and funneling money. And it's not to the 1%. It's the 0.01%, just to make the point. Gerald, we've got stagflation, deflation, inflation. How do you see deflation playing out in 2015 here? Well, again, you know, they're calling it deflation because in that white shoe proper language boys school, they won't call it depression. That's what this is. It's not deflation. Prices are being depressed because it goes back to what I was just talking about. Not enough people have enough money. And so the money's all concentrated in the hands of the few. So when you're looking at oil prices, and we've been on top of this, when they hit $115 a barrel in June and the prices started to go down, our radar went up. What's going on over here? Is the height of the driving season, why are prices going down? It's not only oil prices that are down. You have copper prices down to over five-year lows. Why? Well, China consumes about 40% of new copper production. So what we're looking at, this is not deflation. It is a depression. People cannot afford to buy products. That's what happens in a depression. And they're coming out with this sick thought that deflation is bad. You know why, little boys and girls? Because if people know that prices are going to go down, 
then they're not going to go out and spend money. What a load of garbage that is. You go look at yesterday's market. Look how it was up 282 points and wham, bam, it's knocked down. Even with the grand manipulation, they cannot keep these markets going. The new year has started on a down note. And now you're seeing gold, you know, moving well above that 1200 mark for the time being. So we think the bottom is already here. We believe this is a good year for gold and not a very good year for the equity markets. We may see the panic of 15 before too long in the equity markets. Gerald, thank you for your time today. I know you got to run. Come see us soon. And again, thanks for coming on, folks. You can see Gerald Salente's website is bookmarked there at weekendvigilante.com. Again, Gerald, thank you for coming on the program. Well, thanks for having me, Sheila. Folks, that was Gerald Salente. You can see his information there at weekendvigilante.com. Folks, thank you for tuning in today. Please tune in every day at 6 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time right here on WWCR. Good night, folks, and God bless. Folks, I'm tired of hearing about revival. I'm tired of hearing about awakenings. The last day outpourings of the Holy Spirit. I've heard that rhetoric for 50 years. Just rhetoric. No meaning whatsoever. I'm tired of hearing about people in the church who say they want their unsaved loved ones saved. I'm tired of hearing people say I'm concerned about my troubled marriage when it's just talk. Rhetoric. And I look at the whole religious scene today and all I see are the inventions and ministries of man and flesh. It's mostly powerless. It has no impact on the world. And I see more of the world coming into the church and impacting the church rather than the church impacting the world. I see the music taking over the house of God. I see entertainment taking over the house of God. An obsession with entertainment in God's house, a hatred of correction and a hatred of reproof. Nobody wants to hear it anymore. Whatever happened to anguish in the house of God? Whatever happened to anguish in the ministry? It's a word you don't hear in this pampered age. You don't hear it. Anguish means extreme pain and distress. The emotion so stirred that it becomes painful. Acute, deeply felt inner pain because of conditions about you, in you or around you. Anguish, deep pain, deep sorrow, agony of God's heart. We've held on to our religious rhetoric and our revival talk. But we've become so passive, our so-called awakenings, our stirrings last but a short time. And when the, last, when the re- short-lived revivings and awakenings come from the hand of God, they are so short-lived. And in those times, we promise God we'll never return to our passivity. But it's not long, it's just weeks or months and we're back and this time we slip further back into passivity than when we started. I speak from experience. 
And we say, this time, oh God, you've touched me for life. I'll never be the same. And it's like fireworks. A loud pang, a lot of noise, and then it dies. All true passion is born out of anguish. All true passion for Christ comes out of a baptism of anguish. You search the scripture and you'll find that when God determined to recover a ruined situation, he would seek out a praying man and he'd take him down into the waters of anguish. He would share his own anguish for what God saw happening to his church and to his people. And he would find a praying man and he would take that man and literally baptize him in anguish. I believe in the love of God. I've preached mercy, grace, and love, covenant of love. And I believe in preaching the goodness and long-suffering of Christ. But multitudes today are being saturated with your okay messages. We've got people now that are turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. We become like the children of Israel who said the right words. But here's what God said. I've heard the words of this people. They have well said all that they've spoken. All that there was such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep my commandments always that it might be well with them and with their children forever. He said, oh, you have the right words. You sing the right songs, but your heart is not right. You find it in the book of Nehemiah, Jerusalem is in ruins. Here, 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 here was a delegation from the ruined city of Jerusalem coming to Nehemiah. It said Jerusalem is broken down. The walls are down. There's ruin, nothing but ruin. Now these, I'm sure, were godly men. These were good men, but they, they had no concept of how God was going to deal with the situation, how he was going to bring about a recovery. Why didn't they have an answer? Why didn't God use them in restoration? Why didn't they have a word? Because there was no sign of anguish. No weeping. Not a word of prayer. It's all ruined. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, God found a praying man and he takes him down into the waters of baptism of anguish. This man goes down into anguish. And God found a man who would not just have a flash of emotion, not just some great sudden burst of concern and then let it die. You see, we face a similar situation except ours is many times worse does it matter to you today does it matter to you at all that God's spiritual Jerusalem the church is now married to the world that there's such a coldness sweeping the land so many people I know that were my friends and I see them go one by one, husbands and wives into such passivity. 
going to churches where they can find smooth messages, no longer wanting to hear anything of wrath or of correction. Some of my closest friends, I see them falling by the wayside, and, he's, and his, the cry is, is it nothing to you? Closer than that, does it matter about the Jerusalem that's in our own hearts? The sign of ruin that's slowly draining spiritual power and passion, blind to lukewarmness, blind to the mixture that's creeping in. You see, when spiritual blindness comes, very few recognize it. It's the last recognized thing that happens to a child of God. In all honesty, there are numbers among us that are changing and they don't know it. You've lost your fight, so you won't labor in prayer anymore. You won't weep before God anymore. You can sit and watch television and your family go to hell. Does it really matter to you that your unsaved loved ones are dying and we're getting closer and closer to the end? Does it really concern you? They could die and go to hell. Even though you're a lover of Christ. Where's the anguish? Where are the tears? Where's the mourning? Where's the fasting? I know now. Oh my God, do I know it. Until I'm in agony. Until I have been anguished over it. I'm preaching sermons. Oh God, I'm preaching sermons. Then I said, no, it's too late. I don't have that much time. And all our projects, all our ministries, everything we do. Where are the Sunday school teachers that weep over kids they know are not hearing and they're going to hell? I know now it's going to take more than preaching, more than a new revelation. There's going to be no renewal, no revival, no awakening until we're willing to let him once again break us. Folks, it's getting late and it's getting serious. Please don't tell me. Don't tell me you're concerned. Don't tell me that you want your unsaved loved ones saved when you're spending hours in front of internet or television. Come on. There's some need to get this older and confess. I am not what I was. I am not where I'm supposed to be. God, I don't have your heart or your burden. I've been, I wanted it easy. Just want to be happy. There's nothing of the flesh will give you joy. I don't care how much money. I don't care what kind of new house there is. Absolutely nothing physical could give you joy. It's only what is accomplished by the Holy Spirit when you obey him and take on his heart. It gives you the knowing of his voice. That instant knowledge. God saying, this is the way, walk in it. And then the wonderful joy. You've seen God answer your prayer.
build the walls around your family build the walls around your own heart make you strong and impregnable against the enemy god that's what we desire